Welcome to The Journey, a chronological study which goes through scripture from Genesis to Revelation in chronological order. And here we are on the crucifixion. Uh, oh, uh, yeah, hey, before we move on, I, uh, I came across something interesting this past week, too. Sure. That, uh, I, ironically, I'm, because I'm behind, ironically, because I'm behind, I'm reading the Bible in a year. And ironically, I'm reading through the uh, through the trial and the crucifixion right now because, as I said, I'm week behind. I'm really supposed to be an axe, but <laughs> but anyway. So, um, and a commentary that I was reading about it mentioned that uh, at least uh, some biblical scholars' theory is the reason why uh, uh, they wanted, or another one part of the reason why they wanted Roman approval. For Jesus's uh, crucifixion, but they didn't need the approval for uh, Stephen, is because is because it was around Passover time, and Pilate and Herod were both in town, and they're they're saying that probably at the time that Stephen was stoned, that you know no one from Rome was near, we can do whatever we want. Um, that that could be. I don't. It doesn't appear that. Um... Uh, that's interesting, and, and that could be. I, I don't know. Obviously, the the question I would have about that is why Pilate then suggests that they execute him themselves. If if they weren't allowed to do it without Pilate's approval, it's it's interesting that he would kind of say, "Well, why aren't you doing it?" Um, but yeah, that could be. That's possible. I, I, I what I thought you were going to say, which is also true, is they definitely couldn't do it over Passover anyway. Um, as we talked about, there were all sorts of rules in place so that a condemned man couldn't be executed on a Sabbath, couldn't be executed on um, on a holy festival day, um, and couldn't be even held over through that time. That that they had to do uh, reasonably quick trial, but not a one day trial. So they, they kind of had this window to do it in, and because they they captured him the day before Passover. They limited that. They were either going to have to let him go um, or find a way to get him executed on Passover, which they themselves absolutely could not do. So even if the question wasn't about authority, the, the, the Jewish law, there was no way they were going to get away with that. They bent the law, bent the law. They broke the law, but they did it as far as they could do it by being secretive. But to publicly execute him in their circles on Passover, I don't think the Jews would have gone for that at all. I think it would have caused a riot. I think it would have been sig significant enough, um, you know, basically, what's the word I'm looking for? Corruption. Um, I can't think of the word to make something less sacred. I don't, whatever that word is, doing that to the Sabbath by crucifying or not crucifying, they would have had to stone them on the Sabbath would have been impossible but to have the romans do it they could claim they didn't have any gullibility for it culpability for it well i'm having a hard time with words today english is hard um so anyway that's good though that's interesting um uh there there certainly could be contextual reasons like that like you mentioned jolene that stephen was okay but jesus wouldn't have been meredith where is there something you were going to say oh i mean it's kind of with what you were saying like we had talked about last week about how to it seemed like they were trying to yeah not do it in a way that and made them less culpable and that they um also possibly to assuage their guilty consciences kind of yeah. maybe yeah yep <laughs> no there is they are writing this fence i think where they're trying to still even live the lie that they even care about the law at this point, <laughs> you know, they're, they're really flouting it in every 
every way, but they're trying to also live up to this image of their their own image that they're law keepers. And so I think there is a part of it is kind of self-justification and rationalization and trying to come up with ways that they can feel somewhat better about themselves as they go to. Um, so that's really good. So tonight we are going to do the we are going to go over the crucifixion. Um, I don't know, you know, how long it'll take, but uh, I'm pretty sure we'll be able to do it uh, tonight and one night. Um, and um, it's the, obviously this is one of the stories uh, that you can count on all four gospels covering, right? Some of the stories they don't all cover, but here we'll read some of the same things. But you will note differences. Um, between each of the Gospels, and not any nothing contradictory. Well, I don't think so anyway. Um, depends. Again, you can decide to see some of them contradictory if you want to, um, but I don't think they are. And uh, but you're going to see different things that are important to each of them. So very quickly before we jump into walk through the crucifixion, just to kind of as a reminder for us, who can tell me anything that you remember about the agenda or the personality or the tone or the tenor? you know, kind of the 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 um, the approach that each of the Gospels takes. So for Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, um, who can remember where they're coming from? Just to give us all reminders. Anybody remember any of those? Um, Matthew is writing to the Jewish people, and he's showing the ways, he's really intentionally showing the ways in which Jesus fulfills the prophecies in the, the scripture. Good. And uh, Mark is writing to a roman audience i think is that right yeah probably and his That's is right. really his is really kind of the highest uh the most lean like he's really getting to the point it's a little more action oriented it's following what they actually did Good. um luke is just trying to chronicle like the fullest picture he wants all the details in kind of a scientific manner Good. and then John is writing to a more Greek audience. And so it, there's a lot more focus on like imagery. And also he was writing last. So he's kind of filling in the things that maybe weren't covered in the first three. That's good. That's really good. So you will see some of those things. So you would expect then with Matthew, for example, you might see reference to prophecy. And in fact, you do. With Mark, again, you're going to see a lot of action and not a lot of motivation maybe talked about. Um, the only thing I'll mention about Matthew and Luke both is that they also have a tendency between the two of them, they have a tendency to also talk more about um, outsiders, and and that would include even things like women, although all of them talk about women, which is interesting, but but they talk about outsiders and women, and the reason for that is Matthew, as Levi, felt like an outcast, he was kind of, he was a tax collector who was also a Jew, and Luke was a Gentile, and so... Um, uh, and so between them, they have a tendency to to also bring up things that that um, people and perspectives that the others might not. Um, and uh, yeah, that's good, though. Lorraine, that was a good summary. Thank you for doing that. All right. So you can kind of look out for those things as we walk through uh, the crucifixion. So we start on. Mar oh, and this is Passover, I think. So. I told you I thought the crucifixion happened on Wednesday. By the time we got here, I changed my mind. I decided this probably doesn't makes most sense on Thursday. Obviously, our traditional view is Friday, and it certainly could be. Um, John seems pretty clear that it's Passover day. And we talked about how Matthew, Mark, and Luke, um, uh, that the, they might have, that we talked about how the things they said 
also could agree with that, that you have to read them a little bit softly, but uh, but they didn't necessarily disagree with that. And obviously Jesus was crucified on 8A. So with John being so specific, it seems like Passover makes sense. Passover can fall on any day, however, because Passover has to do with the moon. Um, and that and that doesn't always fall on the same day. Um, so, so that doesn't tell us what day it's on. All things considered, as we've walked through it, it does feel like Ju like Thursday, Passover, um, makes the most sense, uh, even just kind of following the chronology through. And one of the things I will point out, which is a big point to a lot of people, not as big a point to me, because I think there's room for figures of speech here, but the prophecy that was made and the way that it speaks of Jesus, it says that he spent three nights and three days in the tomb um, and then came back to life. And if he dies on Friday, it's it's definitely a little difficult to get three nights in there. You got Friday night and Saturday night, and then he, he rises on Sunday. You could say three days because you could say Friday, Saturday, Sunday. But if you include, the, but if you say he actually was crucified on Thursday, then you actually more easily can wrap in three nights and three days. Um, and that, so that it does happen to fit that kind of lingo as well. Um, not a big deal. That's where we think we are. Yes, Meredith. What? And you said we knew like he rose on Sunday for some reason. We do know he rose on Sunday. That is one of the few things we do know. Um, because they say he rose on the first day of the week, which became the Lord's Day, and it's the day the apostles begin to celebrate. Okay. That's referenced in Acts um, a couple of times, so we are pretty clear about it, yeah. All right. Just to remind you, um, it'll come up. Uh, so if this is Passover, so Thursday, it means that the next day is a special Sabbath day because it is the first day of the unleavened bread feast or festival of seven days. So it means that Thursday is Passover, Friday is the Sabbath, Saturday is the Sabbath. Um, so it means you have these two Sabbaths right in a row. And that actually does line up. That does make things line up a little bit when it talks about Sabbath. But really, in a lot of ways, it means Thursday, Friday, and Saturday are all special days where work should not be done. And it was this pressure of this kind of coming up that, that that that's the reason the priests and the Pharisees have been moving at such an incredibly crazy speed. This is why they captured him when they did and then moved as fast as they could, trying him, convicting him, and getting him executed within 24 hours. Um, is because they're trying to not run into this, this whole problem. Now, Passover is a little different. The Passover day, as long as you're before the Passover meal, you can still be doing some work. There's things you can be doing. So we'll see even them, for example, being okay, removing him from the cross, putting him in the grave before that starts is okay. But even there, we see they're trying to hurry because otherwise he's going to end up hanging on the cross for two days and they don't want that, or Friday and Saturday, and they don't want that to happen. So you can kind of see some of the, the time constraints that the Jews in particular are working with. The Romans don't care, um, but it appears that all three, at least two of the three, but probably all three of the criminals that are being crucified at the time that Jesus is being crucified, they're all Jewish prisoners, probably. And so there's a concern for all three of them that things move quickly. All right, so you'll see all that as we go, but let's just go ahead and jump in. Mark 15, 21 through 24. Um, I'm going to talk about some details as we go. Uh, the things we know with certainty come from Scripture. I'm going to I'm going to mention again a book I've mentioned a couple of times. It's by a gentleman named Jim Bishop, and it's called The Day Christ Died. It's actually a little thin little book. It's not it's not a lot. So if you have a chance to find it and read it. Um, I recommend it. You don't have to do it around Christmas if you want. Um, it can be a little bit, he gets a little detailed sometimes. So 
I wouldn't I'd call it PG, but um, but it's a really good book in terms of the history and the explanation. And so some of the things I'll talk about tonight are things I've gleaned from him as well. I tried to stay away from the highly speculative stuff that it doesn't really cover in scripture, but it does make some sense of some things. So that's where some of the information that that I will personally share comes from. Okay, Mark 15, 21 through 24 says, a certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way in from the country and they forced him to carry the cross. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the school. Then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him, dividing up his clothes. They cast lots to see what each would get. This is Mark. Uh, as Lorraine pointed out, he's fast. And he actually covers in this paragraph something that takes pages, uh, or at least many, many paragraphs for the others to cover. Um, but let's talk about some of the things that he touches on, and it'll help us as we go forward. So first of all, just talking about Roman crucifixion a little bit and the cross. So the, the cross... Um, you guys all know what a cross looks like. People wear it around their necks. Looks like a, in in our world, uh, it looks like a lowercase t. And the but so with the way you can think of it, just to let you know, there's a there's a vertical beam. The vertical beam is called the stipes, and that's the beam that goes straight up. And then you have the horizontal beam, and the horizontal beam uh, is called the patibulum. So you have you don't care, but I do. So I'm going to tell you. So you have the stipes and you have the patibulum. Okay. Um, but here's one of the things that's interesting. There were crosses that people were crucified on, which look like our common picture of crosses, where you have the vertical beam and then you have the patibulum is actually about three feet from the top. So it looks kind of like a lowercase t. Archaeological evidence suggests, however, that the Romans in Jesus' time weren't typically using that kind of cross. They were actually using what's called the tau cross. And tau is the Greek letter that we think of as T. It's a cross that looks like a capital T. In other words, you have the stipes is the vertical beam and the patibulum actually sits on top. It goes into a groove on the top. So instead of looking like this kind of cross, it actually looks like this. Uh, just a piece of information that I found interesting. Um, that's likely actually the way that it, that it was. The other thing that is relevant is here, it talks about Simon carrying the cross for Jesus. This is mentioned by Mark and two of the other gospel writers. John doesn't mention it, but it's mentioned by Matthew, Mark, and Luke because it's unusual. What typically would happen is that the prisoner himself was forced to carry his own cross. But even that, let's be clear, the way that it worked is that the stipes, the vertical beam, was actually permanently affixed to the hill. It was stuck in the ground. They didn't dig a, a, a hole and put the post in it and then get the, the post to stand up all of a sudden, you know, at the last minute. That that stipes was permanently on the hill, on Golgotha, Skull Mountain, where people were crucified. It's probably why it was called Skull Mountain. That's a nice, creepy name. And they permanently had these vertical bars affixed. So when it says they carried their crosses, they actually only carried the patibulum. They carried the crossbeam. And the crossbeam itself probably weighed about 100 pounds. So it isn't likely that the prisoners would have been carrying, you know, 200 pounds of cross up the hill um, and maybe more because the vertical beam might actually be bigger. Uh, so this is likely what was happening that in most cases, the prisoner would carry the patibulum. In Jesus's case, uh, the the thing the the reasonable speculation. None of the gospel writers actually explain why Simon is carrying the cross, but it's very reasonable to assume that it's because Jesus simply couldn't. Remember that Jesus has been beaten severely. 
Um, and I, again, won't get into the details, but if you want to kind of know how severely Jim Bishop gets into it and, and pulls this from his understanding of history and Roman history, and when it says that he was flogged, what that actually means, and when it says that he was uh, hit over the head, what that actually means, and he kind of gets into all of it. And the point is, Jesus is very weak. Jesus is is in shock in some ways. His body is at least in shock. And even thinking about all the way back to the garden, when he was in such agony that he was sweating those drops of blood, and then he goes through these trials, which are emotionally incredibly wearying, and he's beaten more than once through the course of these trials, probably twice at least. And each time he's probably beaten and flogged, you know, within an inch of his death anyway. And so he just doesn't, he just can't carry the cross. He literally is unable to. And so because he can't carry the cross, that's why they they grab this guy, this passing shepherd, farmer, whoever he is. They grab this guy, but a strong man, and they just, they force him, it says, to carry Jesus's cross. So Jesus still has to walk to the to the mountain, but Simon is carrying it for him. So that's kind of the, the picture that we see is he's carrying the patibulum. Um, all right, so we go on to Matthew 27. Uh, as they were going, oh, actually, I guess we can comment on a couple other things in Mark, and then we'll see him again in Matthew. So um uh, in case you're in case you're you're curious, the path leading up to Golgotha is called the Via Dolorosa. Uh, there is a song written by uh, I like to say a friend of mine, acquaintance is probably more accurate. Don't think he'd remember me at this point, although one time you might have. Uh, but a, an acquaintance, my name Billy Sprague, who was a songwriter, Christian songwriter for um, some famous singers uh, for a while. He wrote a song called the Via Dolorosa, which was sung by Sandy Patty, most famously. If you ever have a chance, look it up, find it. It's a good song. It's about walking along the path up to Golgotha. When it says they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, it's interesting. It doesn't say who the they is. Uh, it's not likely the guards. Um, and the deal is that wine mixed with myrrh is intended to dull the senses. It's a little bit of like an anesthetic here. And so there's reason to think when we get to one of the other gospels that the people offering him the wine mixed with myrrh are, are a group of women who are opposed to capital punishment, possibly in general, but definitely for these Jewish people, all these criminals, and they want to mitigate their pain. And it's possible that they're the ones who are bringing this wine and this myrrh and trying to get Jesus to drink it. But it says that Jesus refuses it. And Jim Bishop makes the reasonable, plausible case that it's an it's another example of Jesus refusing to mitigate his own pain, his own suffering on our behalf. That in the garden, we talked about how the intense agony he was going through, that the angel strengthened him and he sweat drops of blood. And that only happens when you sort of refuse to faint or pass out or sleep. And so we have this idea that already Jesus was kind of gearing in and refusing to mitigate his suffering. And that could also be true here if they're offering him something to dull the pain, that that's why he refuses to drink it. Because later when they offer him vinegar wine, which is not tasty or pleasant, he takes that. Um, but he won't take this wine mixed with myrrh or gall. Okay, so that that then one more thing is the dividing up his clothes. We'll see Matthew explain that a little bit later, but there's a prophecy about that. And um, so they... They instead of instead of literally like dividing up his clothes, his clothes, a lot of a lot of clothing at the time would have been like one pieces. Um, uh, and so it didn't make sense to really literally divide it up. So they cast lots to see like which item of clothing you would get. OK, so that's that's Mark kind of giving us a heads up to everything that's going to come. Now you'll hear a lot of that same information and the others kind of spread out. OK, Matthew 27. 
As they were going out, they met a man from Cyrene named Simon, and they forced him to carry his cross. They came to a place called Golgotha, sorry, uh, which means the place of the skull. And there they offered Jesus wine to drink mixed with gall, but after tasting it, he refused to drink it. So like he realizes there, it's going to dull his senses, so he chooses not to do it. Luke 23, 26 through 31, as the soldiers led him away, they seized Simon from Cyrene, who was on his way in from the country, and put the cross on him and made him carry it behind Jesus. A large number of people followed him, including women who mourned and wailed for him. Jesus turned and said to them, daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. For the time will come when you will say, blessed are the childless women, the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will say to the mountains, fall on us and to the hills, cover us. For if the people do these things, when the tree is green, what will happen when it is dry? This is sort of a last prophecy of Jesus about judgment, that Jerusalem's going to fall. And he's saying to these women, and this is where, again, the speculation, Jim Bishop's not the only one, but the speculation is that Daughters of Jerusalem may actually be an organization. I don't know, but these women are following him, wailing and mourning. And it may not just be him. It may be the other criminals that are being crucified as well. And it may be them that offers him the wine with the gall or the, the myrrh because they, they just are, are trying to alleviate suffering. And he turns to them and says, and I don't think harshly at all, what they're doing is good. They're, they're mourning. He turns to them though, and he says, don't worry about me. <laughs> worry, worry about Jerusalem. You know, I, I, look what they're doing to me uh, when, and I'm here, imagine, imagine what's going to happen when, when I'm dead, when I'm gone. So it's kind of a last prophecy. If you're going to mourn, he's saying, mourn for Jerusalem, don't mourn for me. John 19, 16 through 17, finally, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. So the soldiers took charge of Jesus, carrying his own cross. He went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. So John just says Jesus carried his own cross. That would have been the normal case of things. I think probably what happened makes sense. The, the, the Gospels line up fine. I think he starts carrying it. I think at the beginning, he's carrying his cross. I think he can't do it. Um, I think halfway along, he stumbles, he collapses. He's unable to carry the cross. So they grab Simon. Simon picks it up, carries the cross the rest of the way. So I suspect that's how those, those four kind of line up. Um, any thoughts on anything we've looked at so far before we press on? I don't know the the prophecy seems kind of weird to me. Also, so blessed are the childless women because it's like so bad there. Yeah, because the judgment is going to be so bad, it would be better if you didn't have children with you when the judgment comes. That's that's language that the prophets used a lot, right? When they talked about judgment to come, they would often say hope you don't have children when this happens because it'll be that much worse so like when like the judgment comes and he like comes back i don't know i think he might be talking about what's going to happen in about 40 years when jerusalem falls to the romans okay Anybody else have any thoughts on that or anything else? I I think um, I think it makes more sense. Uh, uh, the um, the Roman cross as opposed to what we picture it, as far as him not being able to carry it. So it was probably just a a large, you know, 
wooden, I mean, a large chunk of a large wooden crossbar. Yeah. Not the actual cross, which it seems like you would be dragging regardless of whether you were strong enough to carry it. Yeah. Yeah. Even, yeah. I mean, even if you weren't beaten, that, that, we're talking a couple hundred pounds. That's a lot for, I, I would, that, that'd be a lot for anybody. <laughs> I'd have a rough time carrying a 200 pound cross. Um, you know, even a hundred pounds is quite a bit, but yes, we do know historically the, the, uh, the, the vertical beams were, were permanently affixed to the mountainside anyway. So it wouldn't, it wouldn't, I don't think it ever would have made sense for him to be carrying the whole cross. And if anyone asks you, you can say the patibulum, he was carrying the patibulum and then you'll have to explain it all. Other comments, other thoughts. So, I mean, it talks about them casting his clothes and stuff like that. Would he have been like crucified, like naked or? Yes. Yeah. At most in a loincloth, but in reality, probably naked. Um, it, that's, we don't like pictures or movies with that. And I don't, I don't want to see that either. Um, but, but probably they were all crucified naked because the whole, you know, the, think about the, think about what crucifixion as a capital punishment actually looks like. It's, it's a public display. It's intended to be not only excruciating as a warning to other people to keep the law, it's slow, it's excruciating, it's public, but it's also humiliating. It is It is to be as humiliating as possible. So they beat them and they mock them and they strip them and, and crucify them probably naked. Yeah. Mark 15, it was nine in the morning when they crucified him. The written notice of the charge against him read the king of the Jews. So when they were walking the Via Dolorosa, what would happen is the guards would carry a sign in front of them uh, of the charge against them. So typically the charge would read something like murderer or traitor or tried to overthrow Caesar. You know, the charge would be whatever the crime was, uh, ostensibly, again, to show to humiliate them, number one, and number two, to show the justification for the capital punishment, the justification for crucifying them. Um, the fact that the charge they have for Jesus is king of the Jews is peculiar. And it's peculiar enough that the, the Pharisees actually argue with Pilate about it later. We'll see that in a second. But, but, but it is this weird charge that is, it, it, it must have attracted attention. Now, it, it's intended perhaps to be mockery. Probably for some it was. But that's the charge. And to quote Pilate later, he says, I've written what I've written. They're like, why did you put this? We'll see that. So, but that's the charge. It says king of the Jews, because Pilate, that's all Pilate could get out of him. He was, and and out of the, the priests. He was like, what has he done wrong? And they kept saying he tried to, he was he was committing treason. And so, so the best Pilate can get out of that is king of the Jews. Fine. He's trying to be king. But Pilate recognizes he had no desire to be king of the Romans, so to speak. He wasn't trying to overthrow Caesar which is what the, the 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 Pharisees and the priests really wanted him to, to believe. But Pilate never bought that. So that's the charge. They're carrying that in front of him as they go. They end up putting that on his cross, which again, may have been something they did again, so people could look and see again as a warning, don't do this thing or you will be crucified. In most cases, it made sense. Don't kill people or you'll be crucified. In this case, it'd be weird to look up and say, okay, I won't be king of the Jews, whatever. But that was the intention uh, of the charge being there. So the written notice of the charge against him read, uh, King of the Jews. 
they crucified two rebels with him, one on his right and one on his left. Okay, rebels tells us that their charge is definitely the kind of charge that does lead to capital punishment in Rome and the kind of charge that the priests were trying to get Jesus leveled with, a charge of treason, a charge of insurrection, a charge of trying to overthrow the government or, or lead a revolt. Um, these two, by being called rebels, that's what it's saying. They were part of perhaps the same insurrection, perhaps they're together. Maybe they were with Barabbas. Remember Barabbas, who they set free? Maybe they were with Barabbas, but they didn't get set free. Who knows? But some kind of revolt, some kind of insurrection, that's why they're there. Um, based upon the conversation Jesus has with one of them, it appears that at least one of them was a Jew. If they could be that they're both Jews. And that they're they're all three being crucified ostensibly for the same kind of crimes. Again, the best they can get for Jesus is that he was trying to cause overthrow the government. And so he would be with these other two guys, even though they have no connection to each other. They crucified two rebels with him, one on his right and one, is, one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, so you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. Again, this is part of the atmosphere of crucifixion, not that unusual in some in some ways, that, that, that everybody would be mocked who was being crucified. That was what you did, that part of it. But in this case, there is this sort of desperate justification in it. You know, the, the, the priests are like, well, if he was the Messiah, he'd save himself. So we clearly did the right thing, right? I think that's what they're telling themselves. You know, he said he came to save us, can't even save himself. Of course, the irony that we understand is that he was making a choice not to save himself. He was making a choice to, to sacrifice himself to save us, that if he'd chosen to save himself, he wouldn't have saved us. So, you know, it's it's very much a, a, a position of power that he's operating from. Again, power as Jesus talked about it, power to, you know, to love people and power to use the advantages you have for the benefit of others. It's really that kind of Sermon on the Mount kind of power Jesus is demonstrating, a strength they don't understand that in their minds just looks like weakness. He can't save himself, so he doesn't. Um, but everybody's picking it up. Everybody's mocking him. The fact that it says King of the Jews across the top of the cross now, as he's hanging there, of course that invites mockery. Some king, right? Here he is being killed. Can't even save himself. Matthew 27, 35 through 44. Uh, when they crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots. And sitting down, they kept watch over him there. And above his head, they placed the written charge against him. This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Two rebels were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you are the son of God. In the same way, the chief priests, the teachers of the law and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the son of God. In the same way, the rebels who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. So at this point, both of the criminals are, are also in, insulting Jesus. And again, you can kind of understand it. I think for them, there's a real bitterness to it, right? They're like, gosh, if he's really the king of the Jews, he could have saved us. He could save himself. He could save all of us. What a, what a waste, you know, what a, what a waste. And maybe they themselves were led astray by another false messiah, whether it was Barabbas or someone else. And so you can see how they would turn their, 
their vitriol on this this other messiah who appears also to be false because here he is being crucified as well luke 23 two other men both criminals were also led out with him to be executed when they came to the place called the skull they crucified him there along with the criminals one on his right the other on his left jesus said father forgive them for they do not know what they are doing this is easy to overlook. Again, all the last words of Jesus are really easy to overlook, but they're so important. And they're so important, among other things, because they're out loud. In other words, Jesus, when he was alive and well and walking on the earth before this moment, everything he said, he knew people were watching and listening and, and, and in a sense, even recording. He knew that people were hearing it. And so things he said always had a teachable aspect to them as well as being true. Here he is praying to the Father. Does he have to pray out loud? No, he absolutely doesn't have to pray out loud. If his only concern is to intercede for them on behalf of them, that the Father will forgive them, he can do that silently. But he says it out loud so that those around him will hear it because he wants them to, it's that important to him. And so every word that he speaks here on the cross is really important. I'll simply add to this too, that the way crucifixion works, the way you die when you're crucified is you die from asphyxiation. So you're just to, for clarity, the, the nails go through the wrists, which would have been considered the hand, uh, but they went through the wrists rather than the palms. Um, medically and scientifically, the palms wouldn't hold a body. Uh, it would just, we don't need to go into detail, but it wouldn't hold a body, it would rip out. Um, but it goes through the wrists and the bones and the wrists. That's probably, and again, from from uh, uh, archaeology and anthropology and, and looking at bodies that have been crucified, that's where we know they were, they were uh, crucified. So it would go through the bones and their wrists, and then it would go through their feet. Their feet would be put together, and then they would be uh, nailed through their feet. And what happens with crucifixion is over the time, as you're out there and, and you're 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 there, the, the ways you die are slow. You die of exposure, you die of thirst. And most of all, most often, you die of asphyxiation. And the reason you die of asphyxiation is because you can only hold yourself up um, by those by those nails in your wrist for so long. And after a while, you just sink down to the kind of the bottom, and you're you're hanging from your hands, and your lungs are compressed, and you actually can't uh, you can't inhale, you can't take in any air, and so you struggle to stand back up, and then you take a deep breath, and it starts all over again. And eventually, for most people. And eventually it could be days, but eventually for most people, you just are exhausted and you can't take it anymore. And you literally just suffocate as you hang there. It's a terrible, horrible, brutal, slow and agonizing way to die. So for Jesus to speak as he's hanging there, already as weak as he is, already as struggling as he is. And that's why I'm sharing this, not, not to be brutal, because it's interesting to me, the gospels don't share a lot of the physical pain. They tell you what happened. But they really emphasize the, the the degradation. They emphasize the insults and the mockery and the humiliation more. Um, they don't, for whatever reason, get into the, the physicality. So I don't know that we have to. The only reason I mention it in this case is I want you to understand how important these last words are. For him to take the opportunity to take a breath and then expel that breath in speaking something loud enough for people around him to hear, it's kind of nuts. Um, and even that, like the two criminals on the cross yelling at Jesus, it was that important to them to use their breath to to to, uh, to heal, hurl insults at him. But that stops, right? They give that up pretty fast. But for Jesus, he keeps talking. And one of the first things he says is he says, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they are doing. And I think the people, you know, only the people up close can hear that. 
the criminals on the cross, I think, can hear that. And so it's it's really, and it's a it's an incredible thing to say when you're in the midst of being hurt. It's one thing to forgive somebody after you've been hurt and you've had time to kind of deal with it. Here Jesus is in the middle of it. And in all sincerity, he's saying they don't understand. And it's true, doesn't make what they did any less culpable, but it's true that they don't really understand what's happening here. And, and Jesus knows that, and he's able to be compassionate even at the moment that they are being as awful to him as they could possibly be. And he says, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. And he could be talking about the criminals who are insulting him. He could be saying, you know, they aren't really part of this and they don't understand who I am. Um, it says, and they divided up his clothes by casting lots. And, I, and the reason I think the criminals heard him is because both criminals were yelling insults at him. And after he says this, one of them changes his tune. And I think it's at least plausible that it's because he heard Jesus forgive him and ask for forgiveness for him. And he's and he's he's moved by that and realizes that Jesus is different than he is because he was hurling insults at a man he didn't know because of his own anger and bitterness. And here Jesus was forgiving everyone around him, presumably including himself. Uh, let's go on, you'll see that. It says, they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching and the rulers even sneered at him. They said he saved others. Let him save himself if he is God's Messiah, the chosen one. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar. So again, that's not intended to be a comfort. That's an, even a little bit of an insult. You're so thirsty, you'll drink anything, but we're going to give you something terrible to drink. Um, they offered him wine vinegar and said, if you are king of the Jews, save yourself. There was a written notice above him which read, this is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. And I think this is a change of heart for this other criminal. And I think it might be because of the words Jesus spoke. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence? We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. How does he know it? Maybe he knows who Jesus is. I think more likely he knows it because Jesus just forgave everyone. Because Jesus said, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And this man's like, that isn't what a guilty man says. That isn't what someone who's, who, you know, what guilty man does what we're doing, which is uh, lashes out in anger. And he realizes, you know what? I'm here because I deserve to be. But this man doesn't deserve to be. And he's forgiving those of us who are doing terrible things to him. I, I think that's what's happening. This man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And here's the other thing that's interesting. At this moment, while Jesus is on the cross, most of the apostles, we don't know what they're thinking, but it's unlikely that they are still thinking Jesus is going to come into his kingdom. It's unlikely that they are thinking the Messiahship is happening at this point. They're probably confused. They're probably really worried. Maybe John has an inkling. Maybe Peter. I, I don't know. You don't get that sense from the way they react later. It's pretty unlikely. And yet here's the criminal on the cross watching Jesus die who says, oh, I get it now. You are coming into your kingdom. And when you do, remember me. I don't know if he even means bring me to it because he's dying. And I don't know that he has an eternal sense of the kingdom here either. But I think he just knows that he's like, you're going to get out of this somehow, and you're going to have your kingdom. And when you do, I just, I'd just like to be remembered. And so he says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered him, truly, I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. This is a strangely um, controversial passage uh, because it really causes trouble for certain theologies. And I am delighted that it does. Because what it does is it always brings us back to grace. For him to say to Jesus, 
just remember me. And Jesus to say, today you will be with me in paradise. It, it, it puts a lie to the theologies which say you have to be baptized to be saved. It puts a lie to the theologies which say you have to do any work to be saved at all. It puts a lie to the theologies which say deathbed conversions never work. It puts a lie to all of those because that's all that happens. Here's a guy who, as far as we know, never did a good thing in his life, except at the end, he simply said, remember me. And Jesus said, you'll be with me in paradise. The other thing it does is I think it cuts through all the confusion and arguments that we have about exactly what happens after you die. And when I say cuts through, I don't mean it answers it, but I mean it tells us what's most important. There's a lot of discussion about after you die, do you lay dormant, you know, until the rapture, and then you're raptured? Um, and when you're laying dormant, are you in sort of a limbo state, uh, just hanging out? Or are you unconscious? Or what what is happening then? And those are all good questions that I don't have theological answers to. But Jesus has the important sort of human, relevant, meaningful, emotional answer. And that's that as far as the criminal knows, it will be today. He will see Jesus today. Whether we're out of time or out of space or relayed dormant or whatever, there it doesn't appear that the the the, the criminal is going to experience a period of, of you know, thousands, 2,000, 3,000 years of limbo before he sees Jesus. He's going to be with Jesus in paradise today. And again, I don't know how that works theologically. I don't know how that works in space-time continuums. What I know is Jesus said it to him because it was true in the most important way in that that will be the perspective of this criminal. And I think we can take comfort from that, that that will be the perspective of all of us, that the day we die is the day we're with Jesus. And we don't have to worry about how that fits everything else because Jesus says to us, as he said to him, today, you'll be with me in paradise. So I just like that. I sometimes... I can get caught up in weird arguments. And so it's important for me just to have that kind of kind of given. But it's just a beautiful moment. There's a plea for grace. There's a there's a recognition of his own sin and a plea for grace, a recognition of who Jesus is. And then Jesus says, that's it. That's that's all that it is. I bring the gospel and all you had to do was say yes. And you said yes. So I really, I really like that moment. Um let's read John's version of that, and then we'll we'll take any comments you guys have too. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on each side and Jesus in the middle. Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened it to the cross. It said, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this sign, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. By the way, outside the city, but near the city. Crucifixion always took place outside the city. Um, and the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. Just an interesting side note, this is pretty typical um, for Jewish citizens in Rome, that they knew and read, and well, anyone who read would read, not everybody read, but anyone who's literate did, but they knew and spoke Latin and Aramaic and Greek. Latin, not being a dead language at the time, but being Rome. Uh, Greek being very tied into who Rome is. And Aramaic being not Hebrew, but being what most Jews spoke. So when Jesus speaks throughout the Gospels, he's probably speaking in Aramaic mostly. What happens is that Aramaic is the language that the Israelites spoke when they left Babylon. It's a, it's not Hebrew. It's a different language, but it comes from the same roots. It's the same family of languages. Um, and and uh, it uh, it's like a dialect, but it's also fairly different language. And so, but that's what they spoke. They came out of the Babylonian exile speaking in Aramaic, 
there's only two books in the Old Testament which are written in Aramaic. One is Daniel and one is Ezra. You notice both of those are in that time frame of the Babylonian exile. We don't know exactly how or why that happened, but it did. And it turns out, in fact, that, that for many, many years after, uh, like until relatively recently in the last century, most Jews who did, they, they either spoke the language of the nation they were in, or they spoke Aramaic, or what we sometimes call Yiddish now, which is a dialect also of Hebrew, but very few of them spoke Hebrew. And it's only been in the last hundred years that Hebrew has kind of been reclaimed as the national language. Now in Israel, it is the, the national language. Most people do speak Hebrew and English. Anyway, all that's a little bit aside, but that's why it's written over the sign uh, in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek so that anybody could read it. Oh, okay. So the wine vinegar thing, that, that was just kind of a thing that they were doing to like give them something to drink type thing? I think to mock them, really. Okay. It's like you're hungry. Why would Jesus drink it? Because he's incredibly thirsty. Okay. Right? If okay. if you if you meet someone who's dying of hunger or thirst and you give them something terrible to eat or drink, they're going to eat or drink it. And then you laugh at them because they're so yeah. degraded as to eat or drink whatever you give them. That's kind of the the idea. Okay. Yeah. The chief priest of the Jews protested to Pilate do not write the king of the Jews, but that this man claimed to be the king of the Jews. They're like, why did you write king of the Jews on there? He's not the king of the Jews. Write that he claimed to be. That's the charge. And Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. It's a little bit mysterious. I it's, I think the idea that, that the gospel writers would have us understand is that God, again, is in control. So he's had the actual truth written on the cross. Pilate just wants to be done with it. So he wrote that and they're like, you should change it. He's like, I'm so done with this Jesus guy. I don't, I'm not going to go change it. What I've written, I've written, just live with it. Um, and of course it, it's fine for their purposes too, because it comes, becomes really mockable, but through it all, it is a reminder that God knows what he's doing and God's in control. And the actual truth is written on the cross. The actual charge of which Jesus is guilty is that he's king of the Jews. And that's it. Not just that he claimed to be, but that he is. Um, so I think that's kind of interesting. It says, when the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, dividing them into four shares, one for each of them with the undergarment remaining. This garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Yeah, so it's John who's actually going to give us the prophecy here. Uh, the garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's choose by lot who will get it. This happened that the scripture might be fulfilled that said they divided my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. So this is what the soldiers did. Now near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. All right, get these four in your head uh, because the list is different in each of the gospels. And the question is, are these actually the same people? Because some are named and some aren't. Are they the same people or are there more women? I think there are more women, by the way, by the way it's written. But we might be able to get some of these names. So here's, first of all, so many Marys. The only three names we get here are all Mary. Mary, Mary, and Mary, and then another woman. Um, so we have, well, actually, it doesn't tell us his mother's name is Mary, but we know that. So we've got Mary, the mother. We've got uh, Jesus's aunt or Mary's sister. Don't know who that is. We've got Mary, the wife of Clopas. 
don't know who that is, but her name is Mary, and she's married to a guy named Clopas. And we have Mary Magdalene, who we've run into. So these four women are there. They're near the cross of Jesus. So they're hearing a lot of what he's saying. They're hearing his last words. They're seeing all these things that are happening. I think it's entirely reasonable that when Luke is collecting information, these are people he's talking to, right? I mean, Luke is already okay with outsiders and 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 people that others might not talk to as reliable. He's going to talk to and find out if they're reliable. I imagine he talked to the women quite a bit because they are there for a lot of this. And so we see they're there for the resurrection. They're there for the crucifixion. They're mentioned specifically by name, which is unusual. All four gospel writers mention at least some of the women by name, um, which again, if you were making something up, this is actually a stronger testament to the veracity of scripture than some people would understand. At their time and place, if you're making up a story, you don't use women as your witnesses. You don't use women to witness the crucifixion and the resurrection. The two most important points of the story, you would use Peter. You would use the men. And the men are bare. John is there, barely mentioned. Uh, the women are mentioned in all four gospels. So it is kind of an indication that what they're writing happened and not what they would have made it up because they wouldn't have made it up in this way. Uh, when Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to her, woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, the disciple took her into his home. Um, so here we have John. He's there with, with Mary. And I think you kind of can see it. You know, the 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 way that when you have a, a lot of times, a lot of us, are, some of our kids did this um, with their friends or some, you may have done it with your friends when you were growing up, where you sort of become part of your friend's family. And I think what we see here is that John has been so close to Jesus for the last three years and maybe more, but he's been so close to Jesus that he's kind of already become a caretaker of Jesus's mom. He's already, and so when she's standing there watching her son die, John is there maybe more for her than for Jesus, maybe. Maybe this is what gave him the courage to be there when the rest of the apostles have all run. Not a, not a sort of undying faithfulness to Jesus, although that's possible because there's a lot of affection from John for Jesus, but also for his mother, that his mother is there and she would kind of be alone, although she's got the other women with her as well. And John is there and Jesus sees that and he knows that. Here's another moment where last words, Jesus has to speak loudly enough for them to hear him. Now they're close to the cross, but in one of his last words to John and Mary, he takes care of both of them in a sense, but he takes care of his mom. And this would have been something that the firstborn would have done, right? If a, if a firstborn is supposed to take care of his mom, especially if his dad is dead, which appears to be the case, because we haven't heard from him since the very beginning of the gospels. If dad is dead, it is the responsibility of the first firstborn to care for mom. And if the firstborn is dying, one of the things he does is he makes sure mom is cared for. And that's what Jesus is doing. He says, John, this is now your mother. And, and mom, this is now your son. He will take care of you. So again, in his last moments, in the last breaths he has, as difficult as it is to speak, again, first thing he did was be compassionate to those who were hurting him. Second thing he does is see the needs of his best of his friend and his mom and and put them together and take care of things that need to be taken care of so it's just i think very characteristic of jesus i, I know it's a weird thing to say but i think it's important to see that in little ways he's still thinking of others even at this moment we know in big ways he is he's doing this for others but i think the fact that the words he's speaking are still so often coming out in reflections of helping other people should remind us that's who our God is. That's who Jesus is. I think it's pretty, pretty credible and pretty amazing. At noon, 
darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. Um, one, so <laughs> there's always an attempt and I get it and I don't hate it. And sometimes it makes sense. And maybe sometimes it helps our faith, but there's always an attempt when a miraculous thing happens in scripture to come up with, with sort of scientific empirical explanations for the miraculous thing that happened. And again, I, I don't think that's necessarily bad, but I think sometimes it's unnecessary. And in this case, it doesn't work. I read a commentary, made a really smart point. A lot of people talk about this being an eclipse, right? Solar eclipse happened. Well, they point out the path, and I don't know all the science behind this. So if they're wrong, I'm wrong. But here's what they said. They said there can't be an eclipse at this moment because this is Passover. And Passover is all about the moon. And exactly where the moon is, is in a place where it can't be Passover. So this darkness is completely supernatural. Now, I, again, it could be clouds, whatever, if you really want an explanation like that. But one of the other gospel writers says the sun stopped shining. And I, I just, you know, I don't have any problem with that actually being the case. You know, Jesus can do whatever he wants. God can do whatever he wants. The point is, there's an atmosphere happening here <laughs> that that Jesus is there, he's dying, and now it goes dark. And it is causing a sort of spooky feeling among everybody who's there. This is more than just a normal man. Something is happening here. At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice. So here he's taking a good breath. He's speaking very loudly. He says, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It is a quote of a psalm, but he's quoting a Hebrew psalm in Aramaic because he's speaking Aramaic. Um, so he says, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. Um, when some of the people standing near heard this, they said, listen, he's calling Elijah. And this is fascinating because we have people who are standing near enough who don't speak Aramaic, because if they did, they would understand what he was saying, who don't recognize the quote from the psalm because he's not doing it in Greek and they're used to reading the Septuagint, but who understand enough about Jewish religion to know about Elijah coming before Jesus does his thing. So it's an interesting group, right? It's people who are 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 Jewish, but maybe not as not as devoted, not kind of completely all in. Um, or it's God-fearing Gentiles who understand a little bit about the Jewish religion, but not enough to speak Aramaic. And so you've got this group of people, though, what they hear is they hear him say, Eloi, Eloi, which is my God, my God. They think he's calling out to Elijah. And they and they're they're scared because their understanding, again, is that Elijah will come before the Messiah's kingdom comes. So there's still an expectation, hope or fear by some, that Jesus is going to come off that cross, that he's going to get down and he's going to, his kingdom is going to come, and that Elijah is going to pave the way. So that's what it says. And this gives us a different picture of the wine vinegar, back to Meredith's question, that maybe it was actually an attempt to do something sort of kind, because now they're afraid of Jesus. Um, so I'll let you decide which is the case. Are they being kind? Or are they mocking him? Uh, it says, when some of those standing near heard this, they said, listen, he's calling Elijah. Someone ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a staff and offered it to Jesus to drink. So the idea is here, it's like a little, little sponge kind of thing on a staff. So all he can do is kind of suck it off. It's not like they're giving him a glass, obviously. Um, now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down. So they're like, okay, uh, now we've given him a little something. Maybe he won't be as mad at us. Now let's see what happens. Now we're going to wait and see. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. Now we're going to see more words from one of the other gospel writers, but this is where, where it ends for this gospel writer. So he cries out to God, why have you forsaken me? Uh, quoting a psalm, 
um, expressing, I think, the, the totality of the sacrifice that Jesus is going through, that God is actually allowing Jesus to die a human death with all the crazy incomprehensibility that it means. Um, and yet here it is, it's happening. And with a loud cry, um, which may be one of the other words we hear, or it might just be an, an inarticulate yell, Jesus breathed his last and he sinks down and he dies. Um, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And so um, this is weird in a lot of ways. First of all, there's no reason for it to happen. There are some earthquakes, so it could potentially relate to that. But the curtain tears from top to bottom, which is a weird way for, for things to tear. Um, normally they would they would kind of unzip from the bottom up if they're being if the pressure's there. This tears from top to bottom, uh, as one commentator points out, as if someone from above is tearing it. Um, it is curtain is a better word than veil. You may have heard translations of veil, but that implies something thin. This is the curtain that separates the holy of holies from the holy place. If they had made doors, um, you know, in the tabernacle, it may have been a door. But they didn't. They made curtains. It's thick. It's intended to keep people out. It's intended to be sort of soundproof. It's intended to be a barrier. And so this is a moment where at Jesus' death, the Holy of Holies is now opened up. The, the path to God, the access to God. And you remember how important this was. They Only one person once a year could enter the Holy of Holies. They had to be cleansed specifically and specially when they did. And there was a fear that even then they would, they would offend God and be executed within the Holy of Holies. So they wore bells and had a rope, right? So they could be pulled out. That Holy of Holies is now gone. That, that The separation, the curtain between the holy place and the Holy of Holies is gone. The access is now granted. And, and it is the, the, the picture, the symbolism, the thing that God is saying is really clear. You don't have to reach very hard. He's saying, everybody now has access to me. I have made everyone holy enough, those who accept me at least, to enter the Holy of Holies. So the curtain is no longer needed, no longer necessary. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the son of God. Now, this is interesting, and it's different from the people who said, maybe Elijah's coming. They were thinking Jesus was a different person and, and special because they thought he was still going to be saved. He was still going to get off that cross. Here's the centurion who sees him die and then says, the way he died, does that mean the darkness it can't mean the curtain because he has no knowledge of that happening in the temple. Uh, is it the earthquakes, which we're told happened? Possibly. Is it dead people coming to life, which we're weirdly told happens? Possibly. Or is it the fact that Jesus died with these words of blessing and forgiveness and, and love on his lips? It could be that. Whatever it is, it's so impressed this Roman centurion that he is perhaps the first, well, definitely the first person after Jesus's death, because he's right in there, to say he's the son of God, to acknowledge it after he died, to say his death didn't negate who he was. He is the son of God. Now, it's a centurion. What does that mean? Probably means what it would mean to Romans. Like he's like the emperor. He's like a Caesar. They do die sometimes, but they are deity. They are gods. They are the son of God. Probably meant that to him. But it still is an amazing declaration of faith. And it is one of the many examples of faith uh, that we are given in Scripture, and this one by Mark, Many of, one of the many examples that were given in Scripture of centurions having faith, of Roman oppressors being the, some of the ones who first respond to the Messiah. Remember how Jesus said about one of the Roman centurions, he turned to his apostles and said, how come you can't have faith like that guy? 
didn't say it that way, but pretty close. He said, I've never seen someone who had such faith. And here we have another description of it from the centurion. Now we have another acknowledgement of the women. So when women were watching from a distance, among them were Mary Magdalene. Okay, that lines up with one of the women we already knew was there. Mary, the mother of James, the younger, and of Joseph. So now we have a Mary who's a mother of James and Joseph. Some people think this is the Mary that is the wife of Clopas. So now we've got a whole family for her. Mary is married to Clopas, and they have James, and they have Joseph. That's possible. And then it says, and Salome. Well, the only person that's not named Mary that was listed in the last four was the sister of Mary. It is unlikely the sister of Mary would be named Mary. Um, so this makes sense. And for that reason, longstanding tradition is that Mary's sister, Jesus's aunt, is named Salome. So is but that isn't Salome the isn't Salome the mother of James and John? The son when she comes to or did I that may be apocryphal. I thought um, Salome was the mother of James and John. Okay. You here's the deal. That that you're gonna see in a second why that is. Because when we get to the next gospel, it's gonna tell us that one of these people is the mother of James and John. <laughs> and so that's who we're left with. Oh, it must be Salome. That's why we said back then that her name was Salome. I don't think it said it. You can look, Lauren. I'm be wrong. If it did, no, I don't think it. I don't know. I don't think it did, but if it did, that's actually extra confirmation. Otherwise, it's just because of these these passages that people think Salome is the mother of James and John. Um, but yes, you you did you did catch on to a connection that people do make. We'll see that in a second. That they think that this is Salome is the which means, by the way. If all this is true, it means that John and James are cousins of Jesus. And you will find commentators who say that as well, and they pull that from these passages. It's all a little bit speculative, and it requires assuming that all the gospel writers are talking about the same four women, when in fact, they might not be. They might be talking about, there might be nine women there, and they're just mentioning different people in them. But Mary Magdalene and the mother always get mentioned because, of course, they do because they're famous because they're they're in the story in other ways but if you assume that all four well, people and then, are the same, then that's what you end up with you end up with salome being the the aunt of jesus and james and john being the cousin of jesus and who knows hey dave um lorian and then jeff well but then i know a little later when the women go to the grave joanna is mentioned there too so it might not be that weird that someone that there is another that she could be the sister or the mother correct that isn't getting called out correct right it could just be other people right it's it's really not that hard to imagine there's you know nine or ten women or 11 or 12 or 13 or however many and that we're just getting different names for them yeah i agree jeff uh so just uh thing to go back the yeah. uh curtain at the temple yeah yeah yeah, sorry, my phone's being weird. The curtain oh. at the temple would have been incredibly thick and tall, so it is a non-trivial task to rip it. Right. Yeah, that's correct. I actually interrupted myself. I, I think, started I think to say that. Sixteen right. to twenty feet. Sixteen to twenty feet tall, and I think four inches thick is the the number of I've heard. Nice. No, that's um, the other thing right. is the crucifixion would be pretty brutal. So the women may not have been staying there the whole time. So. There may have been four at any given time. True. True. Well, no one says there were only four. In, no. <laughs> in fact, one of them says, and other women. 
So that's why also it's very possible they're just choosing who they name differently. And that that certainly makes sense. Um, but you're right, Jeff. I actually started to say that and I interrupted myself when I was talking about it being like a door. That's where I was starting to going. And then I starting to go and then I went a little bit different direction. Yes, it's a very thick curtain. Um, it and and I don't know exactly, but four inches, yes, sounds about right minimally. Um, so yeah, it's not a, it's not something that would just sort of tear haphazardly. Even in an earthquake, it, it would be weird for it to tear from top to bottom um, all at once like that, right? Might get beat up, but why it would it probably rip off wherever it was attached instead of tear? Yeah, exactly. I agree with you. That makes a lot more sense. All right, good. Oh, in fact, here it is. Mark is the one who tells us there are the women. It says, uh, Mary, the mother of James, the younger, and of Joseph, Salome, in Galilee, these women had followed him and cared for his needs. Many other women who had come up with him to Jerusalem were also there. So there's a lot of them. So again, these could just be the same four named each time, or it could be that there are Mary, the mother, that there could be all different people. Um, and that's totally fine. Um, although it's interesting that Mark doesn't mention Jesus's mother here at all, but I'm assuming it's just because it's a given. I just think Mark is just quite, of course she was there, I guess, but he doesn't mention her specifically. Well, was she watching from a distance? Yeah, that's what I was going to well, say. Because above the, it says she was near the cross. It does. The John account. Yeah, it does. And they were close enough for Jesus to be able to speak to them, which I think he'd have to be pretty close. But it also, but it also says she was with Mary Magdalene up there. And here it says from a distance. So these are all relative terms. So... Oh, interesting. Yeah, you're right. Mary Magdalene is both near you're the right. cross and from a distance. You're right. Well, okay. I mean, yeah, that's easy. They start from a distance and then Mary, Jesus starts talking to Mary and John and they come closer. That's also possible, right? I mean, there's all sorts of ways that would happen. Sure. You're right. It does say that. I hadn't noticed that. All right. Matthew 27. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, he's calling Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and got a sponge. He filled it with wine, vinegar, put it on his staff, and offered it to Jesus to drink. The rest said, now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in top and torn in two from top to bottom. That's the other thing is it doesn't just like tear part way and stop. It tears all the way through. Um, the earth shook, the rocks split, and the tombs broke open. The bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared to many people. Okay, what? Um, this is a weird one. This is peculiar. Uh, this is... Matthew. So some people, is it Matthew? Am I right? Yeah. This is Matthew. So some people have argued that what Matthew is doing here is speaking metaphorically. And because he's a Hebrew and he's writing to Hebrews, they would have been okay with that. And that is sort of true in, in, in one sense. I don't know that I buy that though. It's so weird and so specific. And, but they're like, why wouldn't everyone mention this? And why wouldn't this be like a big thing recorded throughout history? And I, I, I hear you. But the words here are also relative that not necessarily. So you've got an earthquake. You've got chaos kind of reigning. You've got Jesus dying. You've got the dark. 
And then it says many holy people came back to life. Well, many is definitely a relative term. I don't know how many is many. It's more than a few. But what does that mean? 10, 20, 100? I don't know. And then it says they appeared to many people. Again, if they're appearing individually to many people, like there are specific people that God sends specific dead holy people back to, relatives or someone else, to say, hey, something amazing has happened. I guess that could happen in a localized way in which the people who did see it happen would be discounted, right? They'd go out and tell people it happened and everybody would be like, yeah, you're crazy. It was dark. You don't know what's going on. It was an earthquake. It was chaos. You're just nuts. So it is possible this story wouldn't get anywhere um, if it wasn't like a mass mob of people. And the words many, I think, make it feel that way at first. Like hundreds come out and a hundred people see them, but but it doesn't have to be that way. It could just be that that there are certain individuals, again, many, more than a few, but certain individuals that receive messages from certain other holy people who died. I have no idea, though. It's such a weird story and a weird moment uh, that I, I'm just doing my best with it. But I believe it happened, whatever it is. Um, and there you have it. Anybody have any thoughts or comments on these uh, these resurrections? I don't necessarily have an exact comment about that, but it was kind of making me thinking. And then also like when it like goes like dark for like three hours and how it kind of seems to be somewhat like shadows of like you know, like when Jesus comes back and he like, you know, prophesied that and, you know, we're assuming for the end times and he like, like so many prophecies kind of like have both kind of somewhat contemporary and end times things. So I don't know, it, that just kind of like struck me a little bit, you know, no, I I think that's really smart. And I think that's a, a, a good idea. And I think that the people who say that Matthew is being metaphorical, that metaphorical here, that's part of where they go to. And you're not saying he's being metaphorical, you're saying they're happening. But you're both saying the same thing in the sense that their point is what we see here is kind of a capitulation. It's kind of a, I was gonna say a recapitulation, but it's happening before. I don't know what that word, there's not a word for that. It's a pre-capitulation. Pre yeah, it's a pre-capitulation of the end times <laughs> where there's darkness, and then there's an earthquakes, and then there's resurrection. And, and that is kind of what we're told will happen in the end times. And so whether it is God doing it, you know, showing it all this, kind of foreshadowing it, or whether Matthew is telling a story that he doesn't intend to be understood literally, but it is intended to be a foreshadowing of the prophecy to come, that's where the commentators differ. But I like what you said, and I think it is relevant and smart to see that the, 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 the elements are very similar to the things that Jesus said would happen when he came back later. I think that's smart. Yeah. Other thoughts? Many would probably be relative to how often it normally happens or how many people would normally do it. So <laughs> many coming back to life might be a much smaller number than like many people went yeah. to the Super Bowl. You're right. No, I'm with you. If, if somebody said to me, people came to life and I was like, People came to life. What? What? What does that mean? And you said, yeah, well, many people did. You could easily mean six. And that would feel like many to me. Yeah, I see what you're saying. It's an extreme thing. So the relativity even gets stretched further. Good. When the centurion, and here we get a little more that it was some of these things that caused the centurion to, to see this. When the centurion and those who were with, who were when the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus, first of all, guarding Jesus is a weird word for someone who's hanging on a cross, because I don't know exactly, I think they're guarding other people from taking him down. Maybe that's the idea. 
When the centurion and those who were with him, with and those with him who were guarding Jesus, saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, Surely he was the Son of God. Many women were there watching from a distance. They had followed Jesus from Galilee to care for his needs. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of Zebedee's sons. And this is where people are like, ah, so Salome is the mother of Zebedee's sons, because she's the one not mentioned here. Um and we already went over all that. So there's that would be a family tree which says John and James are cousins of Jesus. Salome is Mary's sister, so on and so forth. All right, Luke 23. It was now about noon and darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon for the sun stopped shining and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. And Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. So it is interesting to note that he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Followed by into your hands I commit my spirit. It shows the truth that God, that Jesus is both being abandoned and welcomed by the Father at this moment. That he's being abandoned in the sense that he's taking the punishment and the death and the, and the separation that we all deserve, but also in the recognition that as he dies, he's absolutely being welcomed back into the Trinity where he absolutely belongs. Um, so it is it does kind of show both. When he had said this, he breathed his last. The centurion, seeing what had happened, praised God and said, surely this was a righteous man. This is both more and less than what, what is recorded the centurion saying in other places. It's more because he's praising God, which wasn't specifically mentioned before. It's less because he says he's a righteous man. Possibly to the centurion, those meant the same thing, right? Because an emperor could be the son of God. So saying, yeah, he was guiltless, he was innocent, he was righteous, and saying he was the son of God to the centurion might have meant same things. When all the people who had gathered to witness this sight saw what took place, they beat their breasts and went away. But all those who knew him, including the women who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance watching these things. I think as far as the distance versus nearby, it sounds like as these things get sort of more and more dramatic, everybody backs up. <laughs> but some people leave and the women stay, but they backed up because it's getting weird. John 19, later, knowing that everything had now been finished and so the scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. Okay, remember we've backed up because we're reading them all. So this is not later after he died. Uh, he says, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there. So they spoke to, soaked a sponge on it, put a sponge on the stalk of the hyssop plant and lifted it to Jesus' lips. Like a lot of things, the gospel writers record the same event from different perspectives. Is it because he was thirsty? Is it because they were mocking him? Is it because they were afraid of him? Could all three be true at once? Of course they could be. Um, so there you go. Uh, when, when he had finished the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. This to me is one of the, I just love this. I, I'm so glad that John recorded this because it's such a statement of intention. Here we have Jesus who is dying. And just before he dies, the last thing or second to last thing, depending on where this fits in with father into your hands, I commit my spirit. It's not entirely clear, but, but either the last or the second to the last thing he says is that, that I've completed my work, which is a weird thing for someone dying to say when they're referring to the dying itself. Some people might say that if they've done a great work and then they're dying of old age. But here Jesus is apparently not having completed his work. He hasn't brought in the kingdom as far as anyone else can tell. And yet in his mind, his mission is complete. It's finished. He's done it. And, and I think it's really important to understand that in that, that sense of finality because for two reasons. One is it does remind us that this is not happening to Jesus. Jesus is doing this for us, and it is finished. It is a choice that he's made, and now he's gone through it. He's so glad he's on the other side. This is like that moment, you know, the garden was, was kind of the worst place to be, anticipating all of it. 
then he's actually going through it all, but now it's over. It's over for him and it's over for us. It's finished, it's complete. The second reason I really like this statement and I'm so glad it's here is because it really reminds us that, you know, Jesus did not say, I've, I've started the process, now the rest of you can, can save yourself. No, he's done. His death brought us a righteousness. His death brought us justification. Now, his resurrection brings us life. But his, his death brought us righteousness and justification and sanctification. He made us holy at that moment. It's all done. And to recognize that when he says it is finished, it's ridiculous for us to argue with him, to say, well, no, it wasn't finished. I need to finish it for you, Jesus. I need to do a little bit more. So I really love that John records this because I think it, it really communicates that to us. Jesus did it on purpose. He did it with finality. And he did it completely. He did it. It's all done. You don't have anything to add. So I like that. Uh, with that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. That makes it sound like his next statement, into your hands and commit my spirit may have come after it is finished. Um, that's possible. Yes, Meredith. So you're saying that when he talks about into your hands, I commit my spirit, that that's just more of like a rejoining, like with God. I think so. Yeah. And it's, it's a trust, right? It's a, it's, it's, I'm here. I come it's over. I'm dying. What you sound like you had another thought. Oh no, I I just think it's I don't know. I just think it's interesting. Because yeah, I mean, I guess it goes with the whole trinity thing though, because he is like I don't know, he's connected with the father, yeah, but he's sure. also like his own autonomous being. Absolutely, 100%. There is no way to understand the incarnation, let alone the death of an incarnated God, of a trinity. There's no way to understand it without awe. It, there's awe and mystery to it all, right? It's always going to be that way, and it should be that way. If we think we figured it out, we're, we're probably erring. We're probably, you know, committing a heresy at least a little bit. So it's okay. It should always have mystery and awe. And you're right. That statement itself is part of it. Yeah. Yeah, it, I agree. I guess, you. too, like, I guess too for like the people there, um, it would help like with things that he said before, and it would hopefully help like kind of like solidify some ideas about yep. like you know him being like God being his father. I mean that's what he seemed to be yep. trying to get them to understand like the whole time, you know, no, and that absolutely right. Stuff. And again, it's a good reminder that that's something he could have said in his head right? I mean, he could have prayed that to the father, but he said it out loud. Why say it out loud? Because he wanted people to hear it. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Yeah. There's something really important about that. I agree. Now, okay. says, I keep forgetting who we're in, John. Now, says John, uh, let's see. Now, it was the day of preparation, and the next day was to be a special Sabbath. John specifically says special Sabbath. Remember, John has already communicated that from his perspective, it is clearly the Passover today. So what is it a day of preparation for? Well, it's a day of preparation for the special Sabbath. What's the special Sabbath? The Feast of Unleavened Bread starts. So we got the Passover. Now we're going to have the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So the Passover, the day of Passover is also the day of preparation for the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It's kind of a multi-thing. So that so he is definitely firmly anchoring it, not necessarily on Thursday, but he's anchoring it on Passover. And the next day is not just a Sabbath. It's not just Saturday. It's a special Sabbath. It's a special Sabbath because it's the beginning of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Uh, and the next day was to be a special Sabbath. And so that explains, says John, why what happens next happens next. 
Because the Jewish leaders did not want the bodies left on the crosses during the Sabbath, they asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. Why, why break the legs? Because otherwise they don't die. Remember, we talked about it's a slow process. And the way you don't die is you keep raising yourself up on your feet so that you can breathe. Well, if you break the legs of someone who's being crucified, they asphyxiate much quicker. They can't stand up. They can't pull themselves up by their hands for very long. And so they end up suffocating quicker. So, a, so they basically went to Pilate and said, would you please, we want them all to die quicker. Now, that that actually isn't even, that's actually merciful too. They're going to die. Crucifixion is usually agonizing. So this is also a mercy. All of the three of them at this point would rather die than keep going through this for several more days. But there's a special Sabbath coming up. The Jewish leaders don't want Jews hanging on a cross on the Sabbath. It's just, it's, 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 it's a disrespectful and it's kind of ruining the sacred day. On top of that, the day after the special Sabbath is another Sabbath. So they would actually be out there for two more days before they could actually remove the bodies. So even if they survived that long and died two days later, they still couldn't remove the bodies. So they go to Pilate and they say, would you help us out? We have special holidays coming up. We really don't want these guys, any of them, hanging out here. Can you just go through, have the guards break their legs? There probably was precedent for this at other moments. And, and so that they can die, so that we can take them off the cross before Passover starts tonight and before the special Sabbath tomorrow. And Pilate, because again, Pilate is really all about just trying to keep the peace at this point. He's like, yeah, what do I care? Sure. Um. The soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus and then those of the other. Don't know why they went to the ends first before they went to the middle. Maybe it's because different guards went there or maybe it's because they were obviously still alive, uh, screaming or who knows what. Uh, so it says the soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus and then those of the other. But when they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. So when they get to Jesus, he's already died. He was too, and this again, aside from the fact that Jesus had a mission to accomplish and he did, it also makes sense given the frailty of where he was at this point. He was already weakened. He was already, in a sense, dying before he even got on the cross. He'd been beaten so severely that it didn't take him as long to die. And that makes sense. But they get there. And so they don't break his legs, but they do want to be sure he's dead. So it says, instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. Uh, who are we reading? This is still John. Um, John talks about this later in 1 John, and he draws a lot of symbolism from it, which we'll leave for 1 John. Jim Bishop points out this also is proof of death, that, the, that when you die, there's a sack of fluid around the heart that mingles with the blood from the heart after you die, but not before. And so when they pierced him with the spear and it, and it gushed forth both blood and water, it showed that he was in fact already dead. Um, again, I'm just telling you what Jim Bishop says. I have no uh, knowledge of this scientifically or medically, although I've read other people who said it as well. So, um, the, so to, and John, so it is, if nothing else, it's proof that Jesus is dead. All of this, in a lot of ways, is proof that Jesus is dead. John wants us to understand he was dead. They didn't take him off too early. He wasn't alive. The guy was dead. Um, uh, but John also talks about how it talks about new birth and baptism and and baptism of the spirit and blood and water being part of the new birth. He gets very, as John is wont to do, he gets very symbolic about it. And that's not to say he's wrong. It's just to say that is the way his brain works here at this moment either. The man who saw it has given testimony and his testimony is true. 
I think he means himself. Because remember, John is standing there too with, with the mother. And they have either moved closer or backed away at this point, but I still get the sense they're they're close enough for John to see this. So again, he never calls himself by name, never calls himself out. So I think when he says, the man who saw it has given testimony and his testimony is true, he knows that he tells the truth and he testifies so that you may also believe. John is saying, I am an eyewitness to this. I saw the death of Jesus. There's no question that he died. That is, I think, the point John is trying to make here. I know he died. Because if you don't believe that, to, to paraphrase Scrooge, then the rest of the story doesn't mean anything. Jesus actually died. Sorry, to par yeah, paraphrase Dickens, not Scrooge. Doesn't matter. These things happen so the scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And as another scripture says, they will look on the one they have pierced. So it's actually John in the Gospels, not Matthew, who is quoting, giving us all the prophecies at this point. Um and so we see that those two things didn't happen to the other criminals who were with them. They had their bones broken and they were not pierced. However, the Messiah was, as according to prophecy, unbroken in his bones, um, but still with his, uh, still with the piercing. Mark 15, we're almost done. It was preparation day, that is the day before the Sabbath. Mark doesn't mention it's a special Sabbath, but makes doesn't have to. It's still a Sabbath. So as evening approached, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the council, who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, went boldly to Pilate and asked for Jesus's body. Joseph is a fascinating individual who we haven't met before. We're told in one of the other gospels, as we'll see in a second, that he is, a, he is he's not only waiting for the kingdom, he's a follower of Jesus. He is a disciple of Jesus. He trusts that Jesus is the Messiah, or at least did. Joseph is also a member of the Sanhedrin. But we're also told that Joseph did not approve that with the condemnation of Jesus. We also have been told that everybody at that Sanhedrin unanimously declared Jesus guilty. Putting all those together, there's only one solution, and that's that Joseph was not at the meeting of this with the Sanhedrin. This makes sense. Remember, in their urgency of their kangaroo court and in their rush to condemn Jesus in this secret meeting, it makes perfect sense they didn't invite people they thought would disagree with them. You have to have a unanimous verdict in order to execute someone, although not really in one day, a little confusing, but but generally they wanted to be unanimous. And they so they didn't invite people who disagreed. We know for sure this means Joseph of Arimathea because he followed Jesus. I suspect it also means Nicodemus um, because Nicodemus ends up with Joseph here in a second in one of the other gospels. I think he also wasn't there. Further credence is added to that, that the last time they brought up killing Jesus, it was Nicodemus who said, the guy ought to have a fair trial at least. That's what he said. And so when they decided to have an unfair trial, they don't want to invite Nicodemus along. He's going to be a real party pooper for an unfair trial. He's going to want a fair one. So Joseph of Arimathea, Nicodemus, and possibly others just did not show up or because they weren't invited. So here we have Joseph. He's a rich man. He's very powerful. He's a leader, but he happens to be a follower and a disciple of Jesus. So he went boldly to Pilate and asked for Jesus's body. It also appears that he's this is sort of he's coming out as a follower of Jesus for the first time. We're told again that he's been secretive up till now, but now he boldly goes to Pilate. He's like, well, maybe he figures it's over. I, maybe he's just distraught. Maybe he just doesn't care anymore. He goes to Pilate and he shows himself to be a follower of Jesus by asking for the body. Uh, why does he want the body? Again, he needs to put it somewhere before the Sabbath. He doesn't want Jesus hanging out on the Sabbath dead. That would be terrible curse for him. It would be disrespectful to God. It would just be bad. So he wants to get the body off and he wants to get him buried. And the closest, most available burial plot is Joseph's own burial plot, probably a family plot. So probably lots of room. 
seems like Joseph was happy to kind of adopt Jesus. And eventually he would have been very next to Jesus, I think is what he's thinking. So summoning the center. So Pilate was surprised to hear that he was already dead. Pilate's like, wait, he's, he, that was fast. Uh, summoning the centurion, he asked him if Jesus had already died. When he learned from the centurion that it was so, he gave the body to Joseph. So again, the centurion confirms, yeah, he's dead. So Joseph bought some linen cloth, took down the body, wrapped it in the linen, and placed it in the tomb cut out of rock. Then he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Jesus, saw where he was laid. Uh, this is important enough that more than one gospel writer mentioned it. Not only did they see the crucifixion, but there's no confusion about where Jesus is buried. Why is this important? Because when they go to the tomb later and find it empty, one of the arguments that actually people still make today, and I think the gospel writers knew someone would make it, is that Mary and Mary were confused, that they went to the wrong tomb, that it wasn't Jesus' tomb at all. So the gospel writers are very clear. They saw where he was laid. They knew exactly where he was buried. They had no confusion about it. They watched him be buried in Joseph's tomb. They knew what had happened. So Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. Matthew, as evening approached, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who had himself become a disciple of Jesus. Going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body, and Pilate ordered that it be given to him. Joseph took the body, wrapped it in a clean linen cloth, and placed it in his own new tomb that he had cut out of the rock. He rolled a big stone in front of the entrance to the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were sitting there opposite the tomb. Luke 23. Now there was a man named Joseph, a member of the council, that's the Sanhedrin, a good and upright man who had not consented to their decision and action. He wasn't there. He came from the Judean town of Arimathea, and he himself was waiting for the kingdom of God. Going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body. Then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen cloth and placed it in a tomb cut in the rock, one in which no one had yet been laid. It was preparation day, and the Sabbath was about to begin. The women who had come from Jesus, come with Jesus from Galilee followed Joseph and saw the tomb and how his body was laid in it. They then went home and prepared spices and perfumes, but they rested on the Sabbath in obedience to the commandment. So the deal is, after the body is buried, as part of mourning, but also as part of preservation of the body, you would anoint it with spices and oils and perfumes. It's part of what you did. So they have a plan to do that. They don't have time to do it now. Joseph wraps him in a linen cloth with some spices, puts him in the grave, rolls the stone over it. The women immediately go home before it becomes Sabbath, and they prepare the spices, but they have to wait not only through one Sabbath, but two Sabbaths. They have to wait through Friday and Saturday before they can go to the tomb and do this because you're not allowed to do it on the Sabbath. So that's kind of the situation here. They want to anoint the body, but they have to wait. John 19. Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, because he feared the Jewish leaders. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. Both of them were sort of coming out of the night, coming out of their secrecy, and declaring themselves disciples of Jesus. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. So again, they did wrap him with some spices to begin with. Taking Jesus's body, the two of them wrapped it with the spices and strips of linen. This was in accordance with Jewish burial customs. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. Because it was the Jewish day of preparation, and since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there, and because it was Joseph's. But you can see how it was also made sense. We don't have a lot of time. We don't have a lot of room. Where are we going to put him? Joseph says, put him in my tomb. Totally fine. No one's, it's unused at the moment. Matthew 27. The next day, the one after preparation day. So what does that mean? What day is it? It means it is the first day of the Festival of Unleavened Bread. It is, in fact, what? 
a Sabbath. It's a special Sabbath. Listen to this. The next day, the one after preparation day, the Sabbath, the chief priests and the Pharisees went to Pilate. Sir, they said, we remember that while he was still alive, that deceiver said, after three days, I will rise again. Now, note something. Earlier, they were in a hurry to take Jesus to Pilate, and it had to be done on Thursday. Why? Because they didn't want to be in Pilate's house on the Sabbath, because that would have been against the law, and they knew it, and so they rushed things. But here we are. It is the Sabbath. <laughs> And where are they? In Pilate's house, Pilate's palace, with Pilate, doing things they refused. They said it was their justification for being so fast to execute Jesus was that they didn't want to be interacting with Pilate, this Gentile, on the Sabbath. And yet, there's no urgent reason to do this. But here they are engaging in this conference with Pilate saying, hey, we're afraid they're going to steal the body and pretend he rose again. So they're 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 going to come do what they said they were refused to do when it was in Jesus' benefit to wait they couldn't wait, but when it's in their benefit they really don't have any problem breaking the law which again is pretty classic for this whole story so far. So give the order for the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal the body and tell the people that he has been raised from the dead. This last deception will be worse than the first. Take a guard, Pilate answered. Go make the tomb as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure by putting a seal on the stone and posting the guard. Okay, this is a this is a, a wealthy man's tomb, which means it was already well protected. It was not something that grave robbers could get into. So it's in a garden, probably a locked off garden, or, or you know, a sealed off garden already. That's okay. Then they have a stone they roll in front of it. And this stone is more disc-like than round, probably. What they typically did was they, it was kind of a, not completely because it wasn't really hewn, although this would be hewn somewhat because it's a rich man. It's more of a disc and the disc rolls down into a depression, really a slot that is fit for this stone that's rolled in front of the, the, the tomb. So it would take an extreme amount of strength and effort to roll that stone up out of the way anyway. So this grave is already well sealed. Then the guards come along and it says they seal the tomb. I don't think this means that they did anything to actually make it harder to move the stone. It's already incredibly hard to move. I think this is like a signet seal. Like, like when the king sent a message, he would put a seal on it so you knew if it had been broken, if it had been opened. So in other words, they're, they're thinking that if the disciples come, somehow move the rock, steal the body, and put the rock back, then they'll be able to say, look, the seal's been broken. None of that turns out to matter because when the rock is moved, it's just left open anyway. But that's kind of what they're thinking. But on top of that, they not only put the seal there, but they set a guard posted to keep anyone from even trying to move the stone. So they have a guard. He's there. They have the stone. They have the seal on the stone. The stone is not going to be moved from the, the, the tomb easily anyway. It would take a lot. It's not like someone could do it while the guard wasn't paying attention. He's right there. So this is the situation. This is where the story of the crucifixion ends. He's in the tomb. Now everybody's waiting. The priests are waiting, the Pharisees waiting, Pilate's waiting to see if anyone tries to steal the body. The women are waiting to be able to come anoint the body. And the rest of the apostles are waiting, we find out later, and praying. But mostly they're just trying to figure out what they're going to do with their lives. They have given everything to this man, and this man is now dead. And he's dead. And everybody knows he's dead. Notice that even the guards, this is interesting, telling us the, the care that they're going to to make sure that no one steals the body 
it does remove the other theory that sometimes people bring up, which was that Jesus wasn't really dead. The guards knew he was dead. The Pharisees knew he was dead. Pilate knew he was dead. That's why they were worried not about Jesus escaping, but about somebody else coming and taking him out. Everybody knows he's dead. There's absolutely no question about that. God has worked very hard to make sure that all the evidence is that Jesus is dead. And that's really important for the rest of the story. And that's where we end tonight. Thank you for joining us. The Journey is a ministry of Discipleship Matters, which is an extension of Focus Church and is created by David McGill for the purpose of helping equip pastors to build discipleship communities in their own churches. If you'd like to learn more about the books and conferences and coaching offered by David, you can check out his website, davidmcgill.com.